This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 2, The Ancient World. Episode 36, The Ancient World, A Summary. Three thousand BCE. In the period of time between the Neolithic Revolution and the Bronze Age, agriculture had reached all major land masses, and humankind had started to coalesce into large urban settlements for the first time. Use of metals had become common, and different societies began to develop different levels of technology to utilize these metals. Some would not go far beyond cold hammering, while others would develop advanced methods of smelting and moulding. As city populations expanded, the requirement for more efficient methods of farming became necessary. Methods of irrigation advanced as well as soil management tools, such as the plough, were created. Early ploughs would have been pulled by beasts of burden such as cattle, but the plough was one type of vehicular advance, and the requirement to transport large amounts of yield and goods meant that the use of sledges and rollers advanced to cause humans to create and utilise early wheels. Large-scale trade and transfer of goods within and between societies brought about pressure to keep records of transactions and this is likely to have created the requirement for the first types of writing. The non-residential megalithic spiritual centres such as Gobekli Tepe had been replaced by the temple complexes within the city walls and the shamanic individuals of the hunter-gatherer tribes had been replaced by an elite class in a monarchical society. These are the Neolithic and Chalcolithic periods which carried us from the Paleolithic Stone Age through to the Bronze Age, which began 5,000 years ago. By 3000 BCE, large settlements such as Uruk and Ur had emerged in Mesopotamia, also Memphis in Egypt, Harappa and Mohenjo-Daro in the Indus Valley and many larger settlements around the Black Sea region belonging to the Kukuteni Tripilia culture. After 3000 BCE we can also see the emergence of large settlements such as Karao in the Supe Valley in South America. One major factor that was adding to the wealth of the cities and the civilizations of the 3rd millennium BCE was a healthy trade network and we can see this by looking at excavated artefacts and how far away the materials that make up these artefacts originated from. Trade 
would be conducted across land, along rivers and on sea routes. The river cultures of Mesopotamia, Egypt and the Indus Valley were initially quite prosperous as a result of their locations. The Aegean Sea, with all of its islands, had a healthy sea route trade. Precious stones, spices and textiles would have been traded as well as metals such as gold, copper and tin. This would encourage the production of bronze by different societies and usher in what we would refer to as the historical period of the Bronze Age. Tools and weapons would have been an important product of bronze, but the Sumerians would also make bronze sculptures. Another product of trade materials that would have been important to Bronze Age societies was jewellery, and the Egyptians would have had a particular attachment to jewellery. Trade would make long distance links between societies such as the Mesopotamians with the Indus Valley. At some point a link would be made between the societies of the Indus Valley and the early river societies of China. And we do know that bronze production was taking place in China during the 3rd millennium BCE. Our knowledge of Mesopotamian trade can be determined by the incredible grave goods recovered from the most important members of society, such as Queen Puabi, whose burial we discuss at length back in episode 3. One of the most astonishing things that was uncovered in the grave of Queen Puabi was the amount of human sacrifice that was made. There are two main reasons which are suggested when it comes to this kind of ancient practice. Firstly, it could be linked to the human desire to make offerings to the deities in order to please them and encourage good fortune. Secondly, it is likely that there was a belief in an afterlife and that the sacrifices were made to accompany Queen Puabi on her journey to the afterlife. This would be comparable to the pyramid building practices of Egypt during the 3rd millennium BCE. It is very interesting to compare the spiritual construction practices of different areas of the world from this period. In Great Britain, societies were still carrying out the traditional methods of temple building with the construction of Stonehenge. Even though this appeared to be more like the megalithic temples created since the Neolithic, there was undoubtedly some serious effort invested in the movement of the stones which are believed to have been pulled all the way from Wales, something that would require a superhuman effort. This particular aspect of superhuman efforts in temple building would be a global thing though. In Peru during the 3rd millennium BCE, an urban centre was built at Corral, with one of the centrepieces being a step pyramid. The connection of pyramid building between ancient Peru and ancient Egypt is astonishing when it appears that the two societies could have had no possible connection or communication with each other due to their geographical isolation from one another. Joseph's step pyramid in Egypt resembles the one at Corral, but its purpose was different. While the one at Corral was believed to be a temple, 
Joseph's Pyramid in Egypt was created to be a tomb. Joseph's Pyramid was the first Great Pyramid of Egypt, which is by far the most amazing pyramid building culture that the world has ever seen. The Egyptian pyramids were believed to be where deceased pharaohs would be mummified and kept away from the elements to safely take their journey to the afterlife. Some have speculated that the steps of the pyramid may have represented a stairway to heaven, but the Egyptian pyramid designs would change and future ones would have smoother edges. During the period of Old Kingdom Egypt, pyramid building would reach its pinnacle. Pharaoh Khufu would have the Great Pyramid built at the huge temple complex at Giza. The human effort to create this work may be comparable to nothing else. Potentially, generations of workers taking turns in teams to work seasons at the complex in order to achieve the ultimate goal. The workers would have had to have been housed and fed, which would have been something that involved the wider community. The large stones would have had to have been transported along the Nile River and across the land to the construction site. Construction would have continued beyond Khufu's pyramid, which was the tallest of all pyramids. A second huge pyramid was constructed for Pharaoh Khafre, as well as a great sphinx, which represents an Egyptian tradition of colossus building, as well as a third pyramid for Pharaoh Mankauri. The pyramid site at Giza, like the Stonehenge site in Britain, puzzles many when it comes to working out exactly how it was built. Both of these monumental sites are not just a great feat of construction and architecture, but also they were constructed with great accuracy. Stonehenge, like many other megalithic sites, was constructed with respect to the movements of the sun. The Great Pyramid was built with such an astonishing amount of mathematical accuracy that it amazes experts to this day. The accuracy of the right angles and the success of a construction containing over 2 million large stones. There is evidence of the study of mathematical concepts in the Near East in both Egypt and Mesopotamia, so we should maybe not underestimate the intellectual and academic advances of our 4,000 year old ancestors. These ancient societies would have honoured the objects of the sky and applied their mathematical ideas to create the first known calendars, which would have assisted societies to organise their lives, especially in relation to things such as farming. The fact that city life was so organised and successful enabled people to pursue other, more personal interests. Scholars would be able to devote time to those scholarly studies such as mathematics. The production of portable art was always a popular human pastime dating back to the Paleolithic and this tradition seems to have stayed strong throughout the Neolithic and into the Bronze Age. The people of the Cyclades Islands in the Aegean Sea between mainland Greece and Anatolia were using marble to create figurines. 
Board games were also a pastime of the ancients, but it is likely that it may have been a pleasure reserved for the elite. The royal game of Or was played on a game board of which those that have been discovered have been gloriously decorated with the best materials. It is possible that the earliest Egyptians were playing a game which was an early form of Senet, which is one of the ancient board games of ancient Egypt. We also have evidence of dice from the earliest years of Mohenjo-Daro and another site called Sharesukte in the modern country of Iran, near its border with Afghanistan. 2500 BCE The Egyptian expertise at navigating the Nile was a testament to their expertise of boat building. Evidence of Egyptian boat building was excavated near the Great Pyramid of Khufu, where a boat had been buried in a ceremonial act. When studying evidence of Egyptian boats, we can identify that pairs of oarsmen would have operated in the middle of the boat with an additional pair of oars at the back to steer the boat. This expertise of boat building may have assisted the Egyptians in navigating across the Mediterranean to establish trade relationships with the 3rd millennium BCE Minoans and the people of Anatolia. The Minoans of Crete had already established themselves as an important part of the Mediterranean trade network with their most glorious years still to come. Even by now, they may have proved to have been an important trade link between the Egyptians and the mainland Europeans. Metal expertise was widespread in Europe by this time, with evidence of bronze working discovered in modern Poland and copper working as far west as France and Britain. The Bronze Age was in full flow in the river cultures of the Far East by now as well. The Chinese cultures were cultivating silk and had created a precursor to the modern Chinese writing style. Writing was a familiar thing to find during this millennium with the cuneiform of Mesopotamia and the hieroglyphs of Egypt and what appears to have been a writing style that had developed in the Indus Valley civilization. This hasn't been confirmed, but it would make sense that the Indus Valley civilization would have been writing by now, due to the fact that their society was now very successful and that they had a healthy trade network. Some would suggest that this time was a peak in the Indus Valley civilization. One of the most impressive aspects of the Indus Valley civilization is the drainage systems constructed, and we can see good evidence of this at their city of Mohenjo-Daro. There seems to be a very spiritual feeling regarding personal cleanliness, but the drainage would have also helped to keep the citizens of Mohenjo-Daro healthy and free from infectious diseases, which would have been a dangerous reality of living within urban societies of this kind of size and population. The Indus Valley civilization seems to have been quite a peaceful society, but this was not the case for all societies of the latter half of the third millennium BCE. The success of Mesopotamian life and the emergence of many cities which had influence over their local areas led to border conflicts between city-states over fertile and fruitful lands. 
This would inevitably lead to a desperate need for city-states to destroy each other if they felt that the only way to appease the threat was to eliminate it. This would also mean that the best monarchs would have an ability to lead a military campaign which would require the population of the city to produce a trained army with effective military clothing, defences and weapons. The earliest known military conflict involved two Sumerian city-states and culminated in the story told in episode 1 which describes the fight for fertile borderlands of Gwedena. It ran for a number of generations between the two city-states of Uma and Lagash and demonstrates the lengths that the Sumerians needed to go to to preserve their prosperity. Leaders of the city-states would likely rally their citizens by saying that it was the will of the deities that they fight for their city. King Yanatum of Lagash was victorious over King Enakale of Uma in this initial conflict. Despite this victory, tensions over resources and supremacy of the region would not go away. The city-state of Lagash would eventually fall under the rule of King Urukajina, who claimed that he was divinely appointed in the aftermath of a shamed predecessor. So divine instruction and acceptance was a high priority in these societies, which would make sense when giving the people a purpose to stay united for the good of their city. King Urukajina of Lagash would ultimately meet his match with the rise of the ruler of the city-state of Uruk, his name Lugalzagazi. Lugalzagazi was considered to be the king who would subjugate and unite the Sumerian city-states in the south of Mesopotamia, and this was necessary in the face of a new threat emerging further north. The new threat would come from the cities of Akkad and Kish, which King Sargon the Great united under his own rule, enabling him to build a large army to face off against Lugalzagazi's confederation of southern Mesopotamian city-states. The stories are covered in episodes 1 and 2 of the podcast and are well worth a listen. Sargon's Akkadians would use well-organised military tactics to overcome the Sumerians, defeat them and kidnapped King Lugalzagazi before conducting a ceremonial execution. The Akkadians would now rule over the whole of southern Mesopotamia and their Semitic language would become the spoken language of all of Sumeria, taking over from the traditional Sumerian language. The ceremonial execution of King Lugalzagazi was important propaganda which would demonstrate the power and influence of King Sargon the Great to any who doubted his divine right to rule this Akkadian Empire, often called the first empire of the world. Sargon would install his daughter Enheduanna as the High Priestess of Ur, demonstrating a strong connection between deity worship and royal bloodlines. Spirituality and deity worship was an important underpinning aspect of Mesopotamian life 
and is demonstrated by their epic scriptures such as the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Epic of Gilgamesh tells a story of an ancestral king of Mesopotamia called Gilgamesh. Historians have no idea whether Gilgamesh was a real king or not due to the fact that there is no contemporary evidence of him. So if he wasn't real, it may have been a form of propaganda commissioned by a later king to validate the historical importance of his rule. Although we are blessed with a great deal of written evidence of a 3rd millennium BCE Mesopotamia that allows us not only to build a timeline of Mesopotamian history, but also to learn about the earliest named individuals known to us, it also unlocks further mystery. For example, we know that the city-state of Ebla, which was comparatively close to the Mediterranean Levantine coast, was subject to destruction during this period. However, we cannot be sure who the perpetrators were, with Iannatum of Lagash, Lugalzagazi of Uruk and Sargon of Akkad, all suggested by different experts. Often we find that imperial ambitions of multiple nations can be suppressed by things such as natural disasters or disruptions to trained networks. It would be halfway through the 22nd century BCE that we would see the decline of both the Akkadian Empire and the Old Kingdom of Egypt. This may just be pure coincidence with no direct reason to believe that the two events are related. In Egypt there was a disunity not experienced in many centuries. With no central government controlling affairs there was a steep decline in ceremonial building during a period known in Egyptian history as the First Intermediate Period. Meanwhile, in Mesopotamia and the remnants of the Akkadian Empire, similarly to Egypt, the region declined into independent city-states rebuilding its own affairs. In both areas of the world, particular city-states or gnomes, as they were known in Egypt, would begin the battle for supremacy yet again as there were significant rewards in both areas of the world for those who may be able to achieve the upper hand in both regions and indeed two particular leaders were able to achieve this in each region. In Mesopotamia it would be King Ur-Namu of the city-state of Ur who would rise to the occasion and in typical Mesopotamian fashion would concentrate a lot of energy into the spiritual and ceremonial aspect of Mesopotamian life. Ur-Namu would become well known for his ziggurat construction. The ziggurat was a huge stepped ceremonial building which would be built within the temple complexes of the cities and were believed to have been constructed in respect of the deities and were believed to have been very sacred with restricted human access. We know that ziggurats were built in the cities of Eridu, Nippur and Uruk. But the most famous one was built in the city of Ur itself. Each of the cities would have had its own titular deity and the ziggurat of the respective city was probably built for the worship of this titular deity. Ur-Namu's supreme rule over Mesopotamia and beyond would be known 
as the third dynasty of Ur, synonymous with the Neo-Sumerians. Subsequently in Egypt, a similar rise to power would also take place and it would be conducted by Pharaoh Mentuhotep II, whose rise to success from his power base in the Egyptian city of Thebes was discussed in more detail back in episode 13. Mentuhotep II would successfully unite Lower Egypt with Upper Egypt and this would serve to be the beginning of the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, a period of renewed Egyptian greatness. The Middle Kingdom of Egypt would represent a period of Egyptian history where Egypt would remain unchallenged in its rule over the Nile. But the same cannot be said of the Neo-Sumerians who lost their power at the end of the 3rd millennium BCE, leaving southern Mesopotamia fragmented once again. Elsewhere in the world, we can see that bronze working was now widespread across the whole of Europe, including the Italian and Balkan peninsulas, and pottery cultures would have emerged in South American societies. 2000 BCE Southern Mesopotamia had always been the hub of the wealthiest city-states, especially those who had risen to power over their rivals. Southern Mesopotamian states would have had healthy trade links and one town that was used as a trade crossroads was Ashur in northern Mesopotamia. Although it may have originally been established by Sumerian cultures, the Assyrians of Ashur were now generating their own wealth and could now represent itself independently and as such choose to deal with who they wanted. Meanwhile in Sumer itself, nomadic Amorites took advantage of the disunity of the region to be able to move in and settle. One of the settlements would become the city of Babylon. And so we are beginning to enter a classic period of history where the Assyrians and the Babylonians would compete to be the dominant culture of Mesopotamia for the next thousand years. The presence of each other kept Mesopotamia sharp and at the forefront of cultural advances. We credit the Egyptians with great academic minds for their geometric genius in the construction of the pyramids, but the Babylonians also demonstrated advanced mathematical theory. While the Egyptians were working with fractions, the Babylonians were calculating pi. The most famous monarch of the first Babylonian dynasty was the King Hammurabi. Hammurabi was a man built to lead a nation. He was a successful military leader, a legislative definer and a unifier of people under the titular deity of Babylon called Marduk. Hammurabi integrated the previous dominant city-state of Sumer, namely Larsa, and went on to defeat the Elamites, who had frequently poked their noses into Sumerian affairs historically. Hammurabi is most well remembered for his law code setting down almost 300 laws. Law codes had existed before Hammurabi's reign, but it is fair to say that Hammurabi's law code was definitive and distributed across the kingdom with vigour. The citizens of Babylonia would have known all too well the consequences of criminal activity. Monuments were erected across the kingdom inscribed 
with the law code and it is thanks to these monuments that we have such a good knowledge of the law code today. In the same way that Hammurabi would promote the worship of Marduk to unify the people of Babylonia, he would also validate his law code by claiming it to have been given to him by Shamash, the god of justice. The Assyrians were still establishing their identity during this period. Shamshi-Adad was a powerful monarch who had brought Assyria into the realm of his own small empire, but after his death, this region had become more vulnerable and subject to Hammurabi's imperial ambitions. Mesopotamia, despite the fact that it had seen a number of changes of regimes, had made some very significant advances in terms of its spiritual worship and temple complex construction, which was underpinned by the written epics such as Gilgamesh, which would add depth to the validity of the Mesopotamian deities in the minds of the people. The phases of the moon likely lent themselves to the construction of calendars which are likely to be the inspiration of the calendars that are used in the modern day world. We know that by the first Babylonian dynasty mathematical ideas had advanced dramatically. Meanwhile over in Africa the Egyptian Middle Kingdom was in full swing and it was during the reign of Senesret I that the Egyptians would head southwards. To their south was a Nubian kingdom based at the city of Kerma near the third cataract of the Nile. Senesret would successfully keep these Nubians where they belonged by extending Egyptian influence down to the second cataract. In the north of Egypt it appeared that writing styles were migrating into the Asiatic lands and beginning to take the form of a proto-alphabet in the Sinai region where the previous form of hieroglyphic writing, which contained thousands of different glyphs, would be condensed down to around 30 characters representing vocal sounds. Let's take a look at the rest of the world from the earliest part of the second millennium BCE. Over in Europe, we can see the emergence of an era of great palace building on the island of Crete, where the Minoans were enjoying the wealth of being the central hub of Mediterranean trade. The Minoans would have their own writing system called Linear A, which we are yet to decipher, but is likely to be closely related to the later Linear B script of the Greek mainland. Things were not looking so bright for the Indus Valley civilization, which was now about to start a period of decline, where the well-organized day-to-day governance and maintenance of cities such as Mohenjo-Daro started losing the quality of the workers of the previous millennium, which must have been down to new pressures being felt by the people of this region. Over in China, the rise of the city of Arlito, based near the Yellow River, and its associated culture may be contemporary and possibly even central to the Tsia dynasty, which is written of retrospectively in later works. We have more strong evidence of the Shang dynasty which would ultimately come to power, and in contrast would have a strong amount of written and archaeological evidence to support its existence. It could be that migrations of peoples who originated in Chinese lands from before 3000 BCE were to ultimately become the expert seafaring Lapita culture of Melanesia from around this time period. They could have migrated via Taiwan 
and the Philippines to reach the islands to the north of New Guinea. Over in the Americas, long-distance trade networks were beginning to establish themselves in the North American continent, such as the Poverty Point culture, while in South America, ceremonial centres such as Santa Ana in Ecuador were emerging, carrying on the traditions of previous centuries such as those of Corral, and inadvertently preempting the ceremonial centre greatness of places such as Jabin de Huantar. Well, we've run out of time. That's been half an hour already. And we've not even broken the back of it, really. We've only about halfway through. So we're going um, to cut it off for this week. We're going to come back next week and complete this ancient world summary. So my suspicions were right last week. I thought this week was going to be the last episode of Volume 2, but... Yeah, my suspicions were right. I didn't, uh, I didn't fancy my chances of cramming it all into one episode. And if we're going to make a nice, good summary of the ancient period, one that justifies the nature of the podcast, I think, you know, I think two episodes is correct. And uh, I discovered that as I was writing these episodes, I believe that it would be better to spread it across two episodes. And that's that's where we've come to now. So next week will be the conclusion of the ancient world summary and it should be should be about right we'll take it up from about 1750 BCE onwards and take it through to around 700 BCE where we can then start our focus on the emergence of Greek city-states that usher in the classical period of Greece um, so there we go that's exactly where we are with the podcast at the moment and uh, next week will be the concluding episode of volume 2 so thank you thank you very much sincerely for listening to this week's fascinating podcast episode about the first thousand years of the Bronze Age. Now many podcasts rely on the support of its listeners and uh, you know also the same can be said about this podcast. Uh, Your support helps me to buy new materials and equipment in order to keep the quality of the podcast going in order to allow me to devote as much time as possible to the study and presentation of the podcast. So, as ever, we encourage you to take a look at the Patreon page, become a patron of the podcast, uh, consider making a monthly donation, and it really does help the podcast. When you make a monthly donation, you become a member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. And a couple of people have uh, have joined the Illuminati this last week. They are Francine and Julian Kandros. So thank you so much for becoming a part of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and as usual we will let you know when you qualify for the rewards that we offer to those people who are kind enough to contribute to the podcast and if you want to become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati become a patron and qualify for the rewards that we give out head on over to the Patreon page and uh, that can be accessed if you visit the History of the World Podcast.com website. That is the easiest way. History of the World Podcast.com. And click on the link that says Patreon and consider making a monthly contribution. Doesn't matter how big or how small, everything helps. If you are not in a position to make a financial contribution, we always say rate and review the podcast and help us to gain more exposure. The podcast is more popular than ever and it is thanks 
to all of your support and all of your kind ratings and reviews that help me to gather more exposure. So thank you to everyone who's contributed to the podcast so far and thank you to the new members of the History of the World podcast, the Illuminati. Now, a very kind review on CastBox, which was also tweeted um, on Twitter, and I retweeted it uh, for anyone that was interested. Uh, from B. Salamink Styles, um, I'm, I'm sure I've got that wrong, but um, has reviewed the podcast saying, Fantastic podcast series. I've always loved learning about history and have given up watching normal TV in favour of documentaries. I have had a more concise and structured learning experience listening to this podcast than watching nearly 10 years of YouTube videos. Chris does a fantastic job of explaining historical events and the most impressive thing he is he states opposing viewpoints of historians have relating to historical events. Chris is also very clear about what is speculation based on available facts compared to what can be proven. And the only negative criticism I have is in response to an episode where Chris explains his lack of credentials and he doesn't want that to distract from the information he's providing. That in my opinion, is exactly what makes this series stand out more than most. Academic credentials tend to detract from looking at all viewpoints, unfortunately. Anybody with even a slight interest in history, I believe, would enjoy this series and Season 2, Episode 10, should be required listening for people. Thanks for your time and effort in producing this podcast, Chris. Let me remind myself, which one was uh, Episode 10? Episode 10 was, uh, oh, the religion of Canaan and Phoenicia. Now, that episode has garnered a lot of interest on YouTube. There's been over 90,000 views of that um, episode created by Nick Barksdale of the study of antiquity in the Middle Ages. And you can find that by clicking the YouTube link on the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website in the interact section. You can actually see that video. It's had about 90,000 listens and many, many comments. I've lost count of the amount of comments from people and obviously when you tackle religion it's always going to be a highly controversial subject and I've tried to remain neutral but most people are either accusing me of being biased one way or the other I think it's unavoidable when you're talking on such a subject but thank you so much Styles, for your kind review and very interesting indeed thank you we got some direct feedback about last week's episode on ancient medicine from David Jackmanson Who's, uh, who's stated on Facebook, just finished listening to this episode, I'm finding the amount of detail devoted to unfashionable periods of history fascinating. Like many people, my view of history fades away quickly once we get beyond late Republic Rome and classical Greece before the rise of Athens. So being reminded that the Neolithic world was not in fact static nor stagnant, but a ferment of change, in many parts of human life is forcing me to rethink my perspectives. The idea that it saw the rise of modern ailments because of the change in diet is hugely intellectually confronting. Thanks very much for that, David. And uh, I think in response to that, I think the best thing I could probably say is that I believe that uh, looking at history chronologically from its origins does give you perhaps, dare I say it, a better perspective on what was going on so I've, I've listened to podcasts and I think I've mentioned it in a previous podcast episode where I've uh, where I've listened to a couple of people talk about history from maybe the Neolithic age or the Bronze Age 
and they're talking about people as if they're as if they're backwards, as if they're sort of mentally retarded or something like that. And it's astonishing how they've even got the ability to cook, or it's astonishing how they've even got the ability to construct things. You know, these are intelligent human people. These are us. These are people that have evolved over two hundred and fifty thousand years, and these people that were alive four thousand, five thousand years ago, they're us. This is the final sort of two, three percent of our span on this planet, and there's absolutely no reason why we should doubt their intellect whatsoever. They are us, they just lived in a different period. They have evolved to become as near to us as anything. So, quite right, we should look at it in a chronological aspect and appreciate the intelligence of humans from this period before we start jumping up and down in astonishment how these people were even able to sort of even bath themselves you know they they were they were intelligent people irrigators agriculturers they were very highly intelligent people just like us finally i just want to tip my hat to holger fiello who um has contacted the podcast just to say uh, i found this podcast and i am glad i did i love history and what they teach if we take the time to learn I watch YouTube for videos on history. Thanks so much for doing a good job. Uh, thank you very much for getting in touch. And um, I uh, I will wrap up for this week uh, because uh, this has become quite a long episode. Next week, we're going to be tying up the summary of the ancient world. So thank you so much for listening this week. And until next week, have a fantastic week, everybody. And stay well and cheerio. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.